live like Jesus. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Seventh Sunday of Epiphany, February 20th, 2022, from Christchurch, Jerusalem. In just a few verses, Luke records an occasion where Jesus taught his disciples how to live transformed lives, both as a community and individuals. The heart of this is summed up in three words. Love your enemies. Deacon Neville Jones walks us through several of Jesus' examples of how we should respond when subjected to insults, physical aggression, and injustice. And more than that, how through forgiveness and generosity, we can reflect the character of our merciful Father in heaven. Deacon Aaron Imey starts us off with a word of prayer. As part of the rhythm of our liturgy and our prayer life, there's often a prayer before you do things. We're about to read, study the Word of God. There's a prayer that prepares us to do that. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast of the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Good evening. Our first reading tonight is Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11 and verse 15. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children, and grandchildren your flocks and herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Verse 15, And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
The second text tonight is in Psalm 37, verse 1 to 11 and 39 to 40. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He de delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be to God. Let us stand together for the reading of the gospel. The gospel is taken from Luke chapter 6, verses um, 27 to 38. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. 
Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As we come to look at this gospel passage, let's open with prayer. Thank you, Father, for your word that brings light and truth. Help us by your spirit to see our Saviour ever more clearly, ever more clearly revealed in Scripture that we may heed his words and grow in our knowledge of him. We ask this in his name. Amen. The three Bibles we've readings we've heard today work together around a shared theme, which obviously is not accidental. And so we will be looking at all three, but our main focus will be on the gospel. That's not just because this talk is part two of the teaching following on from last Sunday. It is, but the main reason is because this teaching of Jesus goes to the heart of what we as his disciples need to hear and embrace. In just a few words, we have some of the most challenging and hopefully life-transforming teaching in all of the Gospels, if not the whole of the New Testament. To put this passage in context, we need to go back a few verses in the chapter before I started reading. And we read there that Jesus spent a night on the mountain praying, and he called his disciples to him and chose the twelve whom he called apostles. Then in verses 17 to 19, set the scene like this. He went with his disciples down and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. That sounds to me like a very busy day and potentially exhausting for Jesus. But with all that going on, people wanting to continually touch him, Jesus took the time to specifically address his disciples. And I would take that to mean not just the 12 that he, he just called to be apostles, but the whole group that had come down from the mountain with him. We read, looking at his disciples, he said. But, and, and Jesus goes on to declare four blessings and the four corresponding woes. And that was what Mike was expanding on this passage last Sunday. This, that's immediately followed by today's reading, 
which starts, but to you who are listening, I say. Other translations will use the word here. For example, but I say to you who hear. Now I have a slight preference for this rendering because it picks up on the sense of the Hebrew word shma, which is usually written in English as here, and which we sang earlier in that ancient confession of loyalty. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Used this way, the word here doesn't just mean listen. It's more like listen intently with a desire to take to heart and obey. But whatever wording you have in your Bibles, what's clear is that Jesus in saying that, wasn't speaking to the part of the crowd that had just turned up for what they can get out of him, whether that's being healed or being delivered from the oppression of evil spirits or just to satisfy their curiosity about this new teacher that everyone is talking about. Of course, as his fame increased, there would always be this element within the crowds. But Jesus is speaking to those who will hear and receive and hang on to what he says. This is important in this point of the story because he is about to drop one of his bombshell teachings, which is summed up in these three words, love your enemies. The power of these simple words did not only astound his hearers at the time, they have continued to do so down through the centuries and every generation of his disciples has to face this challenge with humility and with repentance. Thankfully, he goes on to explain what he means firstly in a general way, and then with some specific examples. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. There are three commands here that summarize in general how we should regard or respond to our enemies. These are to do good, to bless, to pray. And each of these commands covers a significant area of our life, our deeds, our words, and our inner world of thoughts and prayers. It's also worth noting that in those three commands, the word for you used in each of these is in the plural. So Jesus is addressing the whole crowd, or at least all those who are there to hear him. It's also helpful to clarify that the word love Jesus used is the word agape. Now you may know that there are four Greek words in the New Testament that can be translated as love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book about it. This word agape has nothing to do with emotions, friendship, or approval, but instead it's the love that chooses 
what is best for the other person or the other party. It's the word that's used for God's love for us while we were still his enemies. Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it makes sense that these three commands to show this kind of love to our enemies are actions and choices. But they are also unilateral. And by that I mean they do not change according to how our enemy treats us or how he responds to us. In fact, they are actions you can take without any response. You can be first on the scene by demonstrating this transforming response. In the next two verses, Jesus gives four specific examples of how we should love our enemies. And here, the word for you is in the singular. So it becomes really personal for his hearers. If someone slaps you on one cheek, give them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Jesus' audience would have had no difficulty in recognizing the someone who slapped you on the cheek. The parallel account in Matthew chapter 5 specifically mentions being slapped on the right cheek, so the other cheek offered in response is the left one. A slap with the back of the hand to the right cheek was, in Roman society, how a master could treat his servants as a reprimand or just to enforce his authority. And no doubt also it was how Roman soldiers would typically treat Jewish peasants of that time. Some commentators have suggested that turning the other cheek was not just an invitation for a slap, it was actually a form of passive resistance. They say that if a Roman were to slap with his palm or punch with his fist, being right-handed, it would be to the left side of the face. But this would also mean that the one he was attacking was an equal, not a subordinate. So to offer the other cheek in this way is actually a non-violent way of asking to be treated as an equal, or at least with a measure of dignity. In the next command, the word coats and shirt don't really make the situation clear to us. But these two garments were all that an ordinary Jew would wear. The shirt or tunic was similar to a nightshirt. It was made of linen and was worn next to the skin. The coat or cloak was a heavier garment, usually made of wool and essentially for, essential for keeping warm in the winter. He is asking his disciples to call out this form of abuse, but in an entirely non-violent way. 
What's obvious to Jesus' hearers is that if both garments were taken, the person would be left naked. I think it's possible that this is an example of Jesus using dramatic exaggeration just to make a point. And we have lots of examples of this sort of thing. It's called hyperbole. Lots of this in his teaching. Uh, My personal favorite is when he accuses the scribes and Pharisees of tithing their herbs, but omitting matters of justice, mercy, and faith. He colorfully describes this as straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The gnat was the smallest creature and the camel was the largest creature. Can you just imagine the camel stuck in their throat? It's a great, it's a great image. (laughs) The basic point about these things make it clear that our personal response to violence, extortion, or robbery is that we should never respond in kind, but rather absorb the wrong inflicted on us, and if possible, by peaceful means, help the aggressor to see the injustice of their actions. These radical values of love and mercy that Jesus calls us to live by, he amply demonstrated in his own life and death. He soaked up lies, abuse, violence, and shame during his trial and crucifixion. And I'm going to read some words from Peter's epistle, which sums this up. Peter writes, if you suffer from doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. One further thought from verse 30. When Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you, I take it in the sense that we should never regard anyone as undeserving of a gift when they are begging. Those of us who live in Jerusalem know well that there are certain sections of society that rely on charitable gifts to support their family. We cannot look down on them, though it's sometimes easy to slip into that way of thinking. In God's eyes, Our righteousness amounts to less than nothing. We are all, both the beggar and the potential giver, we are all absolutely undeserving. 
In that light, any differences between us are negligible. In verse 31, we have what is known as the golden rule. Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Jesus expresses this golden rule in its positive sense, though the negative version of this rule, in other words, do not do to others what you do not want done to you, this was already known to both Greek philosophers and Jewish sages in the centuries before Jesus. There was a particular Jewish sage called Hillel the Elder, who was asked by a Gentile to sum up the Torah while he, the prospective convert, was standing on one foot. The situation is depicted on the menorah that stands opposite the Knesset here in Jerusalem. Hillel said to him, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. And this is Hillel instructing the Gentile and he's standing on one foot. Staying with this idea of the golden rule as expressed by Jesus, we see in the next three verses that Jesus is careful to point out that selective application of the golden rule must not in any circumstances be seen as equivalent to the rule in its universal form. And I'll read the verses. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. This threefold emphasis, this repetition, makes me wonder if there were some people in his day who thought that this limited kind of reciprocal generosity was an acceptable obedience to the Torah and prophets. Clearly, Jesus chooses to differ on that point. And then again, Jesus sums up and reiterates this teaching he says, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. This instruction to lend without expecting to get anything back, I think we can see this in the light of living in the Sabbath year or even in the year of Jubilee when all debts were released. Verse 36 closes this section. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. This is telling us that it's not the principle of the golden rule 
that motivates us, but rather it's the opportunity and the privilege to reflect in some way the character of our God and Father. With this thought, this central thought about mercy, let's take the hint from the compilers of the lectionary and take a look at the life of Joseph, son of Jacob. The remarkable thing about the story of Joseph is the range and the number of parallels that can be seen between his life as recounted in Genesis and the life of Jesus as recounted in the Gospels. Joseph's story covers most of chapters 37 to 50 in Genesis. And so I'll just read out some headlines of his life and you can spot how well they prefigure or prophetically reveal the life of Jesus. So here goes. He was the object of his father's special love. He foretold his future sovereignty. He was mocked by his family. He was sold for the price of a slave. He was stripped of his robe. He was faithful under temptation. He was falsely accused. He was condemned to the king's prison. But in one day, he was raised from prison and became the second ruler in the kingdom. That's not very subtle, is it? He gives hungry people bread. His power and wisdom was acknowledged by rulers. People must bow their knee before him. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of his family. And most importantly, his brothers did not recognize him, but he chose the moment to reveal himself to his brothers. And he forgave his brothers and became their savior. That's 16 points, but there are many, many more if you look closely. This last point that I mentioned, he forgave his brothers and became their savior, was in the passage that we heard read from Genesis 45. So I'll reiterate a couple of verses just by way of reminder. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now that is an unusually generous take on the circumstances of his life. He was sold into Egypt at the age of 17, and the next 13 years he spent either as a slave in Potiphar's house or in prison. But he knew the faithfulness of the God of his fathers, and he had a grasp of something much bigger than his own life and his own misfortunes. So this links to what David says in Psalm 37, 
because it's clear that David also understood the bigger picture, the bigger picture of the timing of God's justice and the wisdom of withholding revenge. I'll read a few verses from verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Amen. Finally, let's return to the last two verses of the passage in Luke 6. These are the verses. Jesus says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. These attitudes, these four attitudes and actions, have the pattern of two negative and two positive, but they all share the characteristics of working in both directions. It's important to remember that Jesus is still teaching about our individual response. Jesus is not denying that we should not use spiritual discernment or apply our judgment to reach conclusions when that's necessary. For example, in matters of church discipline. And this is taught clearly in, in the scriptures. But Jesus is speaking about our readiness to make snap judgments of other people's behavior based on the very limited information that we have to hand. Instead, we should try to give people the benefit of the doubt and acknowledge that situations are usually more complicated than they appear at first sight. But another point to remember is that the, the two sides of the equation, what we do and then what God does to us, these are very far from being equal. On one side, there is our judgment or our condemnation of other people. On the other side is God's judgment and condemnation of us. Our own views and judgments of other people are really of little significance. Whereas God's judgment of us have profound and far-reaching consequences. So in our thoughts, attitudes, and personal relationships, let's let mercy triumph over judgment. As the prophet said, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. And remember, love mercy here doesn't mean to love to receive mercy. It means love to show mercy. And there's a big difference. The last thought is on giving and generosity. And I particularly like the way Jesus draws us in with the idea of receiving from God in those wonderful phrases of overflowing fullness, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now, who would not want to be in the front of the line when God is giving out like that? Well, the good news is that we can be at the front of the line, provided that our own giving measures up to those standards. So try this mental exercise with me. Think of your giving. And by that mean, I don't just mean money, but your time, your energy, your possessions, your ideas, your enthusiasms, and your creativity, the whole package, hold it up before God and see if you can say, I've done my best to make this a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Thank you, Lord, that you can take it and bless others. Can you do that? If you can, and the Most High agrees with you, then you will for sure receive in that way. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that Jesus spoke and taught the, the standards of the kingdom of heaven. But Lord, these are so far from our nature. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us, enable us in our frailty and our sinfulness to walk in those ways and to honor the character of our Father in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.